Well, would you return to the book of Acts? Acts chapter 8. It's been a, uh, a full week, and a, a lot has happened, especially on Thursday, and the storms, and, and it just constantly reminds us that we live in a fallen world, surrounded by fallen people, and dwelling in a fallen body. But God reigns. And he redeems, and he restores. And I was thinking a little bit this week as I saw some of the pictures of what had happened, and, and I was thinking, you know, there's going to be a very unique day that's going to come when, when the heavens will open up, but it won't be for a tornado. It will be for the very kingdom of God will come down and dwell upon the earth, and God will set up his throne on earth for all eternity. There will be no need for a sun or a moon or anything because God will fill it all and be in all. And, uh, and that's a great thing to be thinking about um, and a great thing to be committing our lives to. And so today we're just going to be learning about that. We're going to learn, get some really, I, th- I think, some key insights to help us endure along the way as we have to endure these kind of um, difficult seasons in life. And I think this passage today, as much as it is a very strange story about a guy getting saved and an evangelist being carried off and disappeared somewhere else, there's actually some really good insight in there for us. So, But before we begin, let's just pray here this morning. <clears throat> Father, that song that we just sung, uh, it must be the prayer of our hearts now, that we would uh, take our hearts and our minds and focus them on hearing from you today. And we need to hear from you. And uh, with all the competing voices that go on um, and all the competing things from within and from out, as Paul says, the conflicts on the outside and the fears on the inside, all of those things that battle, we need to hear from you. And I pray, God, that we would truly hear your word this morning and truly um, find the strength and the stability and the wisdom to how to live in this difficult world. Thank you, God, that we can be in your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're back in Acts after a couple weeks celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. We are now back in studying the book of Acts. And, uh, and just to kind of help us get back into the story here, I want to sh- uh, kind of highlight an element of Acts that I think will help us as we study the book together. And it's something that, that we've touched on, I've, I've, I've kind of spoken on indirectly through these past several months that we've been studying Acts, but I want to kind of point it out more directly to you today because I think it will help us understand this book and kind of get back into the flow of what we're looking at and help you to be able to read it on your own and study it on your own. You know, Acts is, is an account of how the first disciples, the apostles, obeyed the Great Commission. Jesus ascended into heaven. He said, go make disciples of all nations. How did they do that? What happened? How did that take place? How did the church go from this little band of people in Jerusalem to actually changing the world? To such a degree that, I mean, you know, as you see the movement of this thing and going even beyond Acts into the movement into the world, I mean, everything from the calendar got changed to the way that we view history. Everything was changed. How did it begin in this one little small region of the world and then become a global, worldwide impacting phenomena that is still alive and and impacting your life 
today. That's what Acts kind of shows us how that happened. One of the things that you see in Acts is, is, and this is to me kind of one of the hidden treasures of Acts, is that you begin to see what the uh, original disciples, what their commitment was like, how they viewed being a follower of Jesus. And there's kind of three things that I see. There were kind of three commitments that emerge in the book of Acts, three kind of powerful commitments that when I look at these commitments, what I actually see is how they understood Christianity. And there were three kind of components to to how they viewed their life. And these three components, I believe, are what kind of were the underlying driving uh, force that turned them from being just a group and a religious sect, so to speak, to actually being a, a global impact in the world. These three things are very simple. The first thing is that, that we see that, the, that they were committed to this, to the reality that they followed Jesus. They did not see Christianity as something where they added Jesus to their life. You know my little pet peeve about saying, I asked Jesus into my heart. I don't necessarily think it's heresy, but the emphasis of that statement is, I asked Jesus in, and the reality is that I'm called to follow him. I might believe with my heart, but I want to follow him. And the reality of life is that oftentimes in our kind of suburban culture, it's easy to kind of think that I've, you know, I'm connected with Jesus, but I'm not necessarily following him. I don't get up saying, God, what's your plan for me today? Oftentimes I say, God, I have a plan today. I need you to bless it. I'm needing you to follow me. And when, when things don't go the way that I want them to go, I get mad and angry and depressed and upset because this was my agenda. And God, you should know how great this agenda is. I came up with it, right? I'm, I'm brilliant. I know what I'm doing. But the reality is that being a Christian is saying, I'm following you, Jesus. I'm a follower of you. Second thing that we see in the book of Acts is that they cared for each other. They had such a caring heart, it, it bled over not only just to the body itself, but even to the outcasts and the marginalized of society. That they recognized that at the core of the gospel is genuine care. We're not just talking about emotional care. We're not just talking about rah-rah care. We're not just talking about saying what you need to say to make everybody feel good. It's actually sometimes saying the good things, the bad things, the hard things, the blessing things, but saying, I'm all in. I'm committed to you. And I'm so committed to you that even if God pushes me out of my comfort zone, I'll step out of that comfort zone to care. I'll step into that world. They were committed to that. And third, they were committed to advancing the kingdom. They recognize that every unique moment of life, the good parts, the bad parts, the trials, the struggles, that every unique moment of life was a unique moment to advance. And the trials, the good, the bad, the upsides, the downsides was all about advancing and saying, God, how are you using this to advance your kingdom? Those are the commitments that we have already seen and we're going to continue to see And it's those commitments that I believe that when when a child of God has those, they actually change the world. They actually change the world. In fact, if I were a youth pastor and you guys were my youth group, I would word it this way. I'm not going to word it this way because I'm not a youth pastor and you're not my youth group. But if 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 it was the case, I would say this is how the church moved from being a thermometer to a thermostat. This is how they move from just reflecting and absorbing the trials like a thermometer does. It just tells you it's 70 degrees in the room. To a thermostat that actually changes the temperature of the room. 
How do you move that way? You move that way not by saying, I need to find a place or find people who are doing this. It's saying, I will be committed to this. I will be committed to being a follower of Jesus. I will be committed to caring for others. I will be committed to advance the kingdom in every sphere of life. When that internal commitment happens, you change and you begin to impact your culture rather than being impacted by it. You begin to impact your circumstances rather than being impacted by them. You make that switch. Well, that's what we see today. That's our outline, by the way. We're going to see this in the life of Philip. Philip, one of the Hellenists, one of the Greek-speaking Jews who was raised up when the widows uh, weren't getting fed, who was then sent out during the persecution and, and was one of the leaders in the Samaritan revival that occurred, now is going to follow Jesus, care for others, and advance the kingdom. We're going to see that today. And I, and I hope this kind of challenges all of us, myself included, to refining that commitment this morning. I hope it does that. Let's look here at how he followed Jesus. Look at verse 26 with me. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then Luke adds, This is a desert place. He's trying to emotionally pull you in that this is not a good road. Okay, We'll talk about it here in a second. But let's keep in mind the context now. Philip left Jerusalem because persecution was coming, had come. He went out to Samaria. He preaches the gospel. A revival is going on in Samaria. The apostles come out. They affirm that revival. And it's going on, and wonderful things are happening. Everything is in place. People are getting saved. Philip is preaching. He's got a successful ministry. And then all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord, the Spirit of God, as we'll find out in a minute here, actually says, I want you to get on this desert road and go from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, I got a map here. should come up. So here's the idea, right? You can see there's Samaria. He, whoa, there we go. He's got to go down to Jerusalem, and then he's got to get on this little road here. See it? And he's got to go down. Now, this little road was a very popular road about 200 years before Philip was born. The Roman Empire came in, built another road, and they abandoned that one. They abandoned it to such a degree... Let me go ahead and do the next slide. This is what it looks like today. After improvements. (laughs) you got to picture that as not having had a nice little grader truck going over it with little borders. Picture thick heavy sand. And as Luke tells us, it's a desert road. Okay, so just in case you want to know, desert means no water. Okay, like this is a hard road to travel. Now just for a moment, think about this. From Philip's perspective, you are out there preaching. You've had persecution. It's caused you to leave Jerusalem. You're out there in Samaria. The gospel's flying, everything's in motion, and then God sidelines you to a desert road. Pretty amazing thing that God would do that. It's a pretty amazing thing. Why would God do this? Now, we know the end of the story, so it's easy for us to lose sight 
of that journey for Philip. Because we know there's this Ethiopian eunuch, and we know that he gets saved, and we know that they find water because they get baptized. So, so then all the drama of the story is lost because we know how it ends. But I sometimes think about what it would be like to be Philip and have an angel show up, you know, this very spirit of God saying, hey, you know that abandoned desert road that no one travels? I need you to go down it now. Okay. Yeah. Why? Why would you do that? Why would you follow God on what appears to be a fool's errand? Well, there's something I want you to think about, God, that you need to remember. God works in the world of the known. The world of the known. What does that mean? God sees all of creation from the moment of the new, from, from the moment of, of the of, of Genesis and the and the garden to the moment of when the heavens and earth unite and we have the new creation and and and, and the and, and the temple of God is among men. He sees both of that. And he knows every path along the way, and he knows how this moment and a tornado that hits northern Illinois fits with the overall working of his plan to leading everything to the end of the age. He sees it all. When God moves people, he doesn't just move people on kind of like, boy, I hope this works. He isn't sitting there going, you know, the situation in your life who took me by surprise too. You think you're freaking out. He's not, he doesn't think that way. He works in the world of the known. One of the things that we learn in the book of Acts is how all of these pieces start to work together because, you see, we live in the world of the unknown. The only thing that I have is faith in God for the future, a limited understanding of the present, and a very skewed understanding of the past. Because as time goes on, the past tends to lean in my favor, right? I was much cooler in high school than I probably really was, but, but to me, as I tell the stories now, you know, I was a much better soccer player, I was a much better musician, right? I mean, like, I just rocked it when I was 16, right? That's how I remember the past. I'm glad there wasn't Facebook and my whole life wasn't up on videos when I was in high school, you know, because my memories are better, Okay, sorry, it's a little therapy moment for me there. But that's what I have, right? A skewed understanding of the past, a limited understanding of the present, and only faith for my future. I live in many ways in the world of the unknown. God exists in the world of the known. He knows exactly what he's doing. And we're going to see some things as this story unfolds of how God really does know and has been working this moment for hundreds of years. And Philip plays a unique part in it. Now I want you to notice a couple things in the text. The first, as I've already mentioned, it's a desert road. You need to know that about the story. The second thing I want you to notice about the text is that if you go back and look at it, he says, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Some of you might have this in your translations. Rise at midday and go to the, to the road. Take the road to Gaza. Some of you might have that at midday. Those are some, some, some translations have that. Why would the some have rise and go at midday and others rise, go to the south? Here's the reason why. The word south, that particular word that's used there, could be translated either as noon or south. It's an idiom. I wish I had an answer as to why 
that was the idiom. I could make something up that sounds plausible, but I have no idea why that word could be translated as either noon or south. Noon is the idiom, meaning it was a word that was used to describe uh, how they describe noon, sometimes going south. If you translate it that way, you'd have rise at noon and take the desert road. Now, actually, to be honest with you, from looking at it and looking at the construction of it, my tendency is to lead towards the noon interpretation rather than the south interpretation. The reason why is because of the fact that he adds it was a desert road. People knew the Gaza road. They were aware of it. But that little reminder, get up at noon when no one travels on a desert road, midday and travel desert. Now, regardless, it doesn't really matter. I don't want to split hairs. But the point is this. It's not a good road. It's not a good travel. It's a tough journey. This guy's being taken out of uh, what appears to be a profitable world and being put in a very un- impro- unprofitable situation. Okay, So look what he does. He obeys, right? Because he follows Jesus. Verse 27. And he rose and he went. I mean, that's just brilliant. I love that. He gets up and he goes. God says, this, this is your road. He embraces the road. Just that simple. He rose and he went. Now, the story's speeding up here a little bit as he gets on this road because he's got to get from Samaria down to that road. So he's got a long journey to get finally to get to the road. But Luke kind of fast forwards here a little bit and says, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning seated on his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Okay, so he comes across this guy. There's a reason why this guy's on this road. First of all, he's got to get down to the water. That's where he's headed to, kind of making his way to the Mediterranean. But he's on this road precisely because he's an Ethiopian and he's a eunuch. You need to understand a few things about this guy to understand what's going on here. So let's kind of unpack who he is. First of all, he's Ethiopian, so he's from... The area of Egypt, Ethiopia, was a much larger region than it is today. Today, a small little nation, but it was really big. It was just south, south of like the Egyptian empire. It was a big region, big, huge uh, powerhouse at that point in time. And, uh, and, of course, he's a eunuch. And just for the sake of keeping things uh, uh, unclear for the young people, he can't have children. Okay, enough said. Okay. Uh, and so, so there, there he is. Now, why is he a eunuch? Why, why do we have this situation? Many kingdoms would use eunuchs, would take slaves, make them into eunuchs, and then that's how they would uh, put these guys around the women. The king would put them around the queen this way, for, therefore there's no worry about them acting and doing anything inappropriate, because they can't. Okay? And so this particular guy now is not just a eunuch in that he's just like a bodyguard for this queen, He actually, we discover, is a court official. It says he's a court official of Candace. Candace is not the name of the queen. Candace is actually the position she holds. Let me explain this to you. In Ethiopia, the kings had a little bit more of like a godlike status. They would kind of walk around and and rule as God. And people would just, they would walk into a room, people would just bow down and worship. And they had this sense of bigness to them that they would kind of walk through a room. But they didn't actually rule the empire practically. They weren't sitting down figuring out how to fix roads and, you know, how to do taxes and things like that. 
That was the queen's job. And so the queen usually would get the name of Candace, and that's kind of the, it was a position of, of kind of manager. So he is the treasurer of the queen who's ruling the nation. He's a very important person. Okay? He, he, he's the secretary of the treasury. He, he runs the finances of the nation of, of Ethiopia. Unique thing is that he is making his way from Jerusalem because he's worshipped God. Why is there an Ethiopian eunuch worshipping God? Interesting thing. My, I'll give you a little insight. Possibly 1 Kings 10 might help us understand that. 1 Kings 10 is the story of the queen of Sheba. Sheba comes to uh, Solomon because Solomon's a wise guy and he's a you know, great king and, and you know, built this beautiful temple. And she comes to see, are you the wisest, best ruler in the world? She comes and she says, wow, he is. She put him to the test and he proved to be the wisest king in the world. And so she sat at his feet and she learned from him. And then she comes back. But where did she rule? It's the queen of Sheba. It's Ethiopia. She is in a long line of queens that did the actual managing of the nation. And she came because she was the manager of it, because the queens in Ethiopia did all the actual ruling the country. And, uh, and she comes back to her region. My uh, kind of speculation here is that this guy has been influenced by this Jewish teaching that had been brought in hundreds of years earlier. And now he's studying this, and he wants to go worship God. And now he's on his way back. We're going to learn a little bit more about what that worship experience was probably like for, for, uh, the, uh, for him. But for now, he's coming back. He's on a desert road for just two simple reasons, and we'll unpack this a little bit in, in a little bit. But because he's a Gentile and because he's a eunuch, he was an outcast. People would not have connected with him. And we'll see that in a minute, how powerful that was. So he's got to take the desert road back. And so Philip now is walking along, sees the chariot, and uh, the Spirit of God says, you've got to join that chariot. You've got to join that chariot. Now what I like about this moment is that Philip obeyed. He followed God. God said, go here. He said, I'll go. That following seemed a little crazy. Going down that road is kind of a dangerous road, a yucky road, life-threatening road. But he went. He did it. And the reason why he did it is because God works in the world of the known. And God knows, in my opinion, hundreds of years earlier that he's going to bring the queen of Sheba who's going to bring truth back to Ethiopia to where this guy who's in the court has access to this information, hears about this, and is coming to worship God several hundred years later, and he's on his way back, and he's got these scrolls of Isaiah, and he's reading them, but no one to teach him. He's following, and he's trying to follow God, but he can't. He's confused. But God is setting the table, allows a crisis to brew in Jerusalem of widows not getting fed. That crisis led to, to seven men being appointed, Those seven men led to Stephen preaching, which led to this horrible persecution, led to people losing their lives, to finally then sending Philip out to get a revival going, and then God moving Philip from that revival to this desert road for this divine appointment. God works in the world of the known. Philip is just reacting. Widows need to be fed. I'll do it. Persecution. Let's get out of here. Hey, Samaritan, let's share the gospel with him. Desert road. I'll go. Right? 
He's just going. God's controlling it all. This is why we follow Jesus. Every moment of our life is connected to God's eternal moments. I think that's one of the lessons of why I can follow God. Every moment is connected to an eternal moment. Okay, so now let's show, see this love for others. Okay, I want to show this to you. Let's press on. Verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, you're not seeing the shocking nature of this part of the story. But it's a very shocking part of the story. Okay? And it's a shocking part of the story for a simple reason. Gentiles, of course, were considered unclean. And eunuchs were considered really bad. There's a passage of Scripture. Deuteronomy 23.1. I'm not going to look at it. You don't have to look at it. Some of you are tempted to go there now, and it's fine if you do. But Deuteronomy 23.1. I guarantee that Deuteronomy 23.1 is no one's life verse. I guarantee it, and when you read it, you'll see why. But I guarantee that no one said, that's the verse I want over the doorpost of my home. Okay? Because it's about eunuchs. And, uh, and it's saying that eunuchs, in essence, are not allowed in the temple. Period. They're not allowed in the presence of God. God said, you're not, you're, I'm not putting you in here. Now, the Jews went one step further with that teaching, right? Because they really want to be holy, so they added some laws to it. And they said, the reason why they're not allowed in is because they're killing life. They've allowed themselves to end the possibility of having life. And so they began to call them murderers. They're murderers because they're killing the seed, and therefore there's no life. And so hatred started to become developed for eunuchs. So here you have an Ethiopian eunuch. He has to travel the desert road to get home. And then Philip is told, go join this guy. And he runs to him. And then the eunuch says, come on up into my chariot. And Philip pops himself right next to this guy. It's just incredible. You see, the thing about the gospel is that the gospel breaks down the caste system, doesn't it? The gospel does away with the caste system. One of the things that impacted me about Ambria's report a few weeks ago was the fact that when she said when she went to India, because of her status as, a, as, a, as an American you know, medical professional, she can sit with the upper caste for lunch. And she says, no, I don't want to do that. I want to be with my nurses. Yeah, but the nurses are a different caste. I want to go there. You see, the gospel breaks down those barriers. The gospel doesn't see an Ethiopian you know, or a Gentile eunuch. The gospel sees a man needing to be saved. And Philip jumps into this moment here. And so he says to him, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, I can't. I don't understand it at all. I need someone to teach me, because that's true. This is complex. Look at the passage he's reading, verse 32. Now, the passage of the Scripture that he was reading was, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who could describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, 
About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Now, here's the question the guy asks. If you're reading the book of Isaiah, you're going to read along, you're going to begin in chapter 1, and it's going to flow pretty simple. Israel, you have sinned, and judgment is coming upon you. Repent. And Israel says, no, I will not repent. And God says, please repent. If you repent, blessings will come your way. I'll protect you. No, I won't. I'm warning you, I'm not, right? This is Isaiah. It's going back and forth. I'm warning you, no, no, we're not going to do this. Ask, okay, you want proof? Give me, ask for a sign. I'll give you any sign in the world. I don't want a sign, God. You're too busy. God says, I'll give you a sign. A virgin will conceive. Okay, but judgment's coming, judgment coming. Okay, judgment's coming. It's come now. It's coming upon you. And now you get to these deep, dark sections. And everyone can look at the history of Israel and say, yes, that's what happened. And then you get to chapter 40. Hey, good news. Shout from the wilderness. Someone's coming. Right? And you go, yes, chapter 40. That changes the book. And you get all excited in chapter 40 because someone's coming. So then Isaiah starts to unfold all these great things that are going to happen and these promises that are going to get fulfilled and all these great things happen and then you get to chapter 53. And all of a sudden you get to chapter 53 and all of a sudden this one who's coming seems to be getting horribly judged by God. God seems to be taking pleasure in crushing this person. It pleased him to crush the son. And, and you're reading it, and you're like, hold on a minute. Who's the one dying? That's his question. I was trucking along great until chapter 53. <laughs> and then I get to this chapter, and I don't get it. Maybe he, the author's talking about himself. Maybe Isaiah's the one who's going to get crushed. It certainly can't be the guy I talked about in chapter 40. He's supposed to save the day. So there's his question. Because then everything kind of picks back up again after chapter 53, and all the promises come in. One time I went to a museum that housed a very large collection of ancient manuscripts. And I was touring these manuscripts, and the guy who, who uh, owned the museum, he said, I want to show you something. And he, and he had this scroll of Isaiah, several thousand-year-old scroll of Isaiah. And he had it kind of unrolled on this table. It was in the display case. But it was unrolled... And, it, and this middle section was all worn out. And he said, do you know what chapter this is? He says, this is chapter 53. And of every ancient manuscript that you find of the book of Isaiah, chapter 53 is the most worn out section of the whole book. He's like, I'm picturing scribes just put their hands on there going, who's this one who's dying? How is this death help? To try and understand it. It's such a weird... If you could, if you had the attention span to read the whole book of Isaiah in one sitting, it's hard, okay? So I'm not suggesting you all have ADD. But I'm just saying that it can be hard. But if you could read it or listen to it, 53 is weird in the flow if you don't understand the cross. So that's what's going on here. Right? I've made the point here. Probably too much. And so Philip says, do you need help? He says, yeah. What's needed for this guy to understand this passage about this one who's going to die? About this one who goes and is like a lamb led to the slaughter? Well, we're going to see Philip answer that question here as we see him move to advancing the kingdom. But the one thing that I want you to notice is this. 
This man's on a desert road for a reason. And Philip obeys. But the obedience of God at this moment was to cause Philip to be in a, on a very difficult place, taken out of a very profitable ministry. Everything up until this point has been thousands getting saved. Have you noticed that in the story? It's like you would just think that God is just building like this giant mega world church because these guys preach and thousands get saved. And then all of a sudden, this guy's taken out of this moment and brought into a moment with one guy. This is kind of the first moment where you kind of see one person getting it. And it's a Gentile who's a eunuch on a road no Jew would have ever walked. God, why are you moving me here? Well, because you see, not only is it going to be a, probably a difficult road to follow, but the reality of the situation is I need you to reach out to somebody that no one would reach out to. I need you to have care and love and compassion because that's who God is. So now we move to him advancing the kingdom. Philip has broken every social custom, has gotten into this guy's chariot, and now look at verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. What does it mean that he, you know, that he opened the scriptures, or beginning with the scriptures? Here's the idea. The gospel, first of all, first and foremost, is something that is to be spoken. It is to be lived. It is to impact our lives. We're to show it. But we have to tell it by itself. We just can't show it. We have to also speak it. It's a message to be proclaimed. And that's what you have. It's a message. And what he's going to do is he's going to show him how Jesus is the key to unlocking all the strange passages of the Bible. Because if you understand who Jesus is, you're going to understand. So he starts with Genesis, basically, and walks him through Malachi. God's plan, God's purposes, the promises of God, why there needs to be judgment, why we need somebody to die in our place. But he begins with the Scriptures And the idea here of saying beginning with the scriptures means, and then he moved to the actual events of the cross. Then he actually specifically said, and then he did come. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. And here's where he was born, and here's what he did. And he died just a a little while ago. He died, and just a little while ago, he rose from the dead. And here's what happened. And then we're in Jerusalem, and the Spirit of God comes. Then this persecution comes, and it led me here to you. I'm sure that's how his story went. Because this is what Jesus is about. You see, advancing the kingdom is pointing people to the person, the authority, the rule, the reign of Jesus. Advancing the kingdom isn't just loving and being caring and compassionate. Advancing the kingdom is through love and through care and through compassion, pointing people to the person and the rule and the reign of Jesus. And he's the key to the whole thing. And that's what he does. He's advancing it. He's pushing it out to this guy. Now notice what happens in the story. This is kind of cool. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, which would have been a miracle. And the eunuch said, See, here is water! Got exclamation point, because he really was shouting it. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, and Philip and the eunuch and he baptized him. Now, I want you to key in on the question. What prevents me from being baptized? They understood that your profession of faith 
in Christ was something that was going to lead to this moment. You're going to, yes, I believe that Christ is it. And now I'm identifying, I'm jumping into the waters and I'm going and showing my death and my resurrection. I've been washed clean. This is it. This is what cleanses me. They understood that, man, you're going right from, 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 from your faith in Christ to the baptismal waters right there. No delay. He understood this, but notice his question. What prevents me from being baptized? Notice he didn't say, hey, look, there's water. I want to be baptized. Do you notice he says, what prevents me? Is there anything stopping me? Now, why would he ask that question? Now, first of all, before we answer that question, how many of you have verse 37 in your Bible? Anybody? Raise your hands. It's okay. How many of you do not have verse 37 in your Bible? Look there, okay. Most of you do not have verse right? What happened? Well, you got ripped off. You need to return your Bible. It's missing a verse. You know, for extra money, they'll hand you the verse. You know, no. What happened? <laughs> some of you have verse 37. Some of you don't. Why is there this missing verse? Um, there's debate as to whether or not that verse actually was in the original manuscripts and just for the sake of not getting too boring on this you know they're always looking for the older and older manuscripts to try to discern how you know do we have the wording correctly and uh a bunch of manuscripts were discovered in the 1800s that were way older than than they had ever saw found before and those really old ones don't have that verse 37 but a lot of the translations that were done especially the king james that was done before these manuscripts were found had a verse 37 in it and so some of you have verse 37 with little note. Some manuscripts do not contain verse 37. Okay? And, and I would probably say that that verse 37 was probably added as a little commentary. And language changes. Every 20 years, languages have to go through an upgrade. Communication does. And sometimes even in the translations of the Bible, they put little footnotes and things along the way as they were translating them so people would understand. Sometimes they would insert little lessons in there. And then monks that were doing the translation sometimes would forget that those were added and they suddenly started getting in the manuscripts. Okay. So verse 37 doesn't mess you up if it's in there because, of course, it says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So the idea is what's preventing me? The answer, Philip's answer, is if you believe, you can get baptized. Older manuscripts don't contain that. So I think that probably the way the manuscript goes is what prevents me, and then they get baptized. The question is, is why is that there? I think that that question isn't just a question about whether or not he has faith in God. I think that question goes deeper, drives us back to Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, and the fact that eunuchs were never allowed in the presence of God. And God said, you're not allowed in. And probably when this guy went to the temple, there was no way that he would have ever been allowed to access to a priest. He has a scroll of Isaiah, but no one to teach him. And he's been cut off. But there's an interesting thing that happens, and I think this passage is here because it's tying up a loose end for us out of the Gospel of Luke. And you've got you to know this little loose end. In Luke 19, Jesus is cleansing the temple. And when he cleanses the temple, he quotes from Isaiah 56.7. And Isaiah 56.7 says that my house should be a house of prayer. And so Jesus is cleansing out the temple, and he says, my house is to be a place where, where prayer is to happen. But the fullness of that quote, I want you to listen to the fullness of that quote, because when Jesus is cleansing the temple, 
He wasn't just saying, I don't want you buying and selling on Sundays, right? No bookstores and churches. It wasn't that. He was actually clearing a space for a particular reason. God had designed a space in the temple so that when the Messiah would come and die, chapter 53, a certain thing could happen in chapter 56 of Isaiah. And here's this thing, Isaiah 56, beginning at verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me, hold fast to my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love his name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and who does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountains and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. You see what he's saying? God's saying, listen, after the Messiah comes, you know what's going to happen? Eunuchs, I'm going to give you something better than children. Because your children could be cut off. Meaning your children could sin and blow it and face the judgment of God, right? There's no hope that your children are all going to go to heaven. I'm going to give you something better than kids. I'm going to get, and by the way, I like kids, okay? (laughs) Kids, this isn't an anti-kid thing, okay? (laughs) I love you, right? I love you guys. Um, But he says, I'm going to give you an everlasting name, eunuch. You will be called child of God. And no one, will ever take that away from you. Isaiah 53 leads to Isaiah 56. Eunuchs get to come, and they get the full blessing of God. They're not judged because they can't have children. They're blessed because they will know God, and God will give them something better, eternal life. This is the blessing. God is making good on Jesus cleansing the temple. This is the fulfillment of that moment. And this eunuch is the first convert, the first one, and this is why it's here in Acts, the first eunuch who gets his seat at the table. Jesus was cleansing the temple for him and letting him know you have a seat with God. What prevents you? Nothing. Christ died and made a way for you. And so he baptizes them. But then notice what happens after he baptized. Verse 39, they came out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. Boop, gone. And the eunuch saw him no more. And he went away rejoicing. Of course he would. But Philip found himself, Zotus, and he passed through and he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So he goes up a little bit north and then eventually goes way back up into Galilee, up to Caesarea. And that's where he spends the rest of his life preaching. Chapter 22, we'll meet Philip again. But he's up there just faithfully preaching the gospel. That's his journey. Now, what do we do here? Let me wrap it up. God's advancing his church. But there's three things we see in this story, right? First, we learn that we are called to follow Jesus. I think this story here teaches us that. I get comfort by this because though I don't want to spiritualize the text and do the, you know, we're all on desert roads kind of story here, but there is a reality that sometimes I feel as if God can knock me out of the way a little bit, can sideline me, they can put me in a situation where it's like, what is going on here? And yet in those moments, 
The issue is, God, I just want to follow you. I don't, I don't need to be God here and have all the answers. I can just serve you and trust you and follow you because you're in the world of the known. You're, you know the Queen of Sheba is talking to Solomon who's bringing truth back to Ethiopia that this guy's hearing and he's going to go to the temple. and You know all that. You're doing all that stuff. This desert moment in my life is connected to an eternal moment. So I just want to follow you. In this passage, we're also called to care for others. The issue of this guy being cut off, and Isaiah references to how the Jews felt about him. They were dry trees. They were you know, fruitless trees. They were you know, looked down upon. But the reality is that's not the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is it restores people. If we don't share in that heart of you know, not allowing our, our, you know, the things that we believe to, to convert it into a judgmental spirit. That's like the worst thing in the world. The things that we believe in God should make us the most compassionate, caring, loving people on the planet because we know the mercy of God. And if in our heart we would say, I'm not going to go talk to that guy. He's this, he's that. You know, then you've missed something big. And we're called to advance the kingdom being in this world is about being an agent of transformation. So how do you get there? If you could just indulge me. I, there's three things that I have to do, and I want to share them with you. These are just my applications. This is how it's touched my life personally. There are three things I have to remember that help me live this way. I, ha- I really do. I battle this. And these are the things I have to remind myself. And I want to share them with you because they might help you. If I want to follow Jesus and care for others and advance his kingdom, the problem, the reason why I don't do it is because I am forgetful of three important things. And I want to remember those three things. The first thing is this. I, don't remember, I want to remember that salvation is about being a follower of Jesus. Salvation is not being just about going to heaven. Salvation is about the fact that I get the privilege of following Jesus wherever he leads me. And many times it leads me into the world of the unknown and the world of the risk and the world of the fear but it's about following Jesus. It's not about just finding a good church as we talked about, you know, and just hanging out till the rapture. It's about saying, I want to follow you, Jesus. Second thing I have to remind myself is that I am here to show the world the heart of God by the way I treat others. And I have to show God's heart that way. Everyone. And the third thing I have to remind myself is that every moment that I live, it's not about me. It's about how God wants to use the uniqueness of that moment to make himself known. Every crisis, every good, every bad, every ugly thing is unique. We've got a lot of unique situations going on in our, in our church body right now. But those moments just aren't about enduring that crisis. They're about saying, God, what is the uniqueness? What is the element of your gospel that I'm supposed to show at this moment? Maybe it's forgiveness. Maybe it's kindness. Maybe it's tenderness. Maybe it's faith. Maybe it's endurance. Maybe it's longing for heaven and giving up a love of this earth. Whatever it is, there's a unique moment. And part of that prayer for me is saying, God, what is that unique moment that I've been called to live? So share that with you. And maybe those will help you as we battle through this. Because we, we are called to follow and care and advance until the end of the age. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this great story. And I thank you for what we learn about Philip, what we learn about the movement of God, your movement. Lord, may we follow, may we care, 
may we advance. That's your heart, God. May that define us so that we could impact our moments rather than just reflect them. In Christ's name, amen.